This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and I'm so glad you're here. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've been in practice for over 25 years in Fayetteville, Arkansas, but I started podcasting three years ago because I wanted to reach out to people to help them understand what exactly therapy is and what it can do. Now, self-work isn't therapy, but hopefully it's therapeutic, and it will give you a chance to at least hear how this one psychologist thinks. I want to reach those of you who might already be interested in therapy or in therapy. I want to reach the group that's searching for answers. Maybe you've been diagnosed with depression or anxiety and you're needing answers. And then there's that third group of people who might never darken the door of a therapist, but are just interested enough or curious enough to listen to a podcast. Welcome to all of you. Today, we're going to be talking about triggers Triggers can keep you stuck because you're unaware what's influencing you to act or feel the way you do. Triggers can be known to you, or they can be unknown or what's called unconscious. There's some confusion about the word unconscious and subconscious. Subconscious is more like if you know today is your birthday, but you sort of forget that it's your birthday until all of a sudden you see the date and you go, oh, it's my birthday today. That's subconscious. Unconscious is something really that's totally out of your awareness. Some of the examples I'm going to use today involve sexual abuse. So if you've been a victim of sexual abuse, please listen with caution because this podcast itself could trigger you. We'll also be touching on the topic of giving up what's familiar and risking the unfamiliar. We all know that we can bear the pain of the familiar, but if you made another choice, If you made an unfamiliar choice, that's a lot riskier. And triggers can have a lot to do with keeping you stuck. Our listener email, which is a regular feature of self-work, is from a woman whose ex is narcissistic and who sexually and physically abused her during the marriage, and yet she's trying to co-parent with him. We'll talk about the significant difficulty of all that. So I'm glad you're here. For whatever reason you're here, sit back, relax, and we'll talk a little bit about triggers. There used to be a show on TV called Wife Swap. I'd watch it simply because it was ridiculously melodramatic and would make me laugh after a long day. Two women from two very different marriages would agree to go live by the other woman's rules for a week and basically live the life of the other. Then the second week, the host family had to follow the rules of the new wife and mom, the ones that she had been following in her own home. Of course, the women were as extremely unalike as the show's producers could find. Perhaps one spent 30 minutes of quality time with her children every day versus the other whose whole life was about serving the needs of her family. Or one was a farm girl up at five with the chickens, the other a corporate executive in high heels and couture clothing. 
As each woman read the new agenda for the first week, you could hear their seeming discomfort, probably exaggerated for the TV audience. And we'd watch them try to mold themselves into someone else's life, doing things quite unfamiliar to them. Then get their, quote-unquote, revenge the next week by being in charge of the family, where they had to do the unfamiliar. Then you'd watch as both couples discussed the two weeks, and they either learned a lesson or they got mad or defensive. It depended. There's another example of this kind of process on Food Network. There's a show where either Robert Irvine or Gordon Ramsay demolish a restaurant and rebuild it in a day or two. But they also ask the owners of the restaurant to give up their familiar and often disgustingly nasty patterns of behavior and risk new ones. We watch tears and anger and disbelief and relief and joy and all kinds of emotions as the folks who own the restaurant have to find their humility and realize the literal mess they've made of things. However, one of the more interesting things was also to note at the end of the show what had happened a year or so later after the TV crews were gone. Had they been able to maintain change? Had they gone back to the familiar Or had the unfamiliar actually morphed into the familiar? As a therapist, I've watched people try to change their lives in many different ways. Often those efforts will be going quite well, and then, bam, (laughs) you're caught by surprise, not knowing exactly what to do. Your stress level is high, so you turn to what's old hat, to that familiar, even if unhealthy, coping strategy. Recovering alcoholics with years of sobriety under their belt relapse. Couples who begin to learn healthy communication skills, but then have an extensive visit from family. And what happens? Their newly minted patterns deteriorate into the old ones. Another example is your healthier eating plan is going really, really well. And then one of your children has to go into the hospital and out comes your favorite comfort food. We all do it, or it takes an inordinate amount of self-discipline, and self-awareness not to do it. When you realize you've relapsed, you can beat yourself up and feel helpless about maintaining your intention. Or you can realize that relapse is part of the process. It's essential to accept that you're not failing when you fall back into old choices or patterns. You're learning. And part of learning is making mistakes. Your intention and commitment can be renewed as many times as necessary. I want to repeat this. Part of healthy learning is slipping up. Part of healthy learning is making mistakes. Part of healthy learning is having compassion for yourself when you go back on automatic. It takes time to establish a new normal. Your focus has to be on the journey, not on the destination. You can, of course, get stuck in irrational thinking and hoping that something will change that literally does not have the capacity to change. But the focus today is on the aspect of learning that is tied up with slipping and going back on automatic, and that is very connected with what we'll talk about as triggers. A trigger reflects something has power for you today because of its association with the past. We all have conscious triggers, and some are pleasant. You smell pipe smoke and remember your beloved granddad. 
You get sentimental as you take out holiday decorations, associating different ones with various vacations or family rituals. But many triggers that you can identify aren't pleasant. In fact, they can be highly disturbing. The scratchiness of a beard on your face brings back memories of your sexual abuse. Hearing a semi coming in the other lane causes terror because of a previous wreck. At their worst, triggers themselves can cause flashbacks, actually feeling as if you're experiencing the trauma of the past all over again. A car backfiring becomes gunfire and you hit the floor. You see the same kind of dog that viciously attacked you years ago and you run away terrified. Flashbacks like this are symptoms of what's called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and they can cause you to no longer feel in the present as your mind and body drag you back to the past, and they're terrifying. But you can also be unaware that something is triggering for you. That trigger is unconscious, outside of your awareness. A conscious trigger For example, is approaching the date of someone's death or a loss of some kind. You anticipate its power. But how do you know you're being unconsciously triggered? Typically, you're either overreacting or underreacting to something. Your emotional reaction doesn't objectively fit the situation. That's when you can perceive the kernel, either positive or painful, of an earlier experience. It's your reaction that's the clue. Your triggers can get in the way of seeing things realistically. Here are a couple of examples. Let's say that you were emotionally abused as a child and you're in a relationship with a really manipulative girlfriend. So you don't see your girlfriend's manipulation as manipulation. You underreact. It's familiar. The opposite, an overreaction, can look like this. Let's say you were raged at as a child And your mom said she wished you'd never been born. So when your best friend reveals he's angry with you, you jump to the conclusion that he's ending the friendship. You overreact. The good news is you can become much more aware of what your triggers are. Maybe you notice that you always get irritated by people who pull out in front of you and you scream at them. Your trigger could lie in the fact that you tell yourself you're being disrespected. You overreact. Let's use the same example for underreaction. Again, someone pulls in front of you in your car, and what you do is you don't get mad. You immediately think it was your fault somehow. What could be the trigger? When in your lifetime have you been in situations where you were around danger and felt blamed or you took the responsibility? So you're acting the same way as you did before. You don't even get irritated you take the blame. Hopefully this is getting more clear. Triggers can be blatant or they can be subtle. For example, if a tornado ripped through your childhood home, you're likely terrified of tornadoes and get extremely emotional when one is close by. That's a blatant and conscious trigger. I'm hoping that this story will help you understand more subtle triggers that can keep old and healthy patterns alive and well. This is the story of Janessa. She'd been a happy-go-lucky teenager and couldn't wait to get to college to see what lay in store for her. She'd come from a family of strong, adventurous women who were known for their tenacity. One night, Janessa was walking down a darker, more remote part of campus, and she was violently raped. She told no one but her parents. 
Her attacker wore a ski mask, and she couldn't have recognized him in a lineup. Like many victims, she never reported the rape. She went home for a long weekend and then went back to school. She distanced herself as much from the trauma as she could and put it behind her. Only when I directly asked a question about sexual abuse was it even mentioned. She told me she never thought about it anymore. When asked how it had changed her, she said, I don't think it did. She had no problem with sexual intercourse and, frankly, dismissed it. Janessa came in and out of therapy several times, but the theme was always the same. She kept being attracted to men who lied to and manipulated her. She kept all of their bad behavior a secret from her family and friends, acting as if everything was great. She was rising in the corporate ranks and was very successful. She used the stress of her job as a reason why she forgave. It was too much trouble to find someone else to date. When she'd finally get enough of one guy and break up, she'd find another one who treated her poorly. Over the years, I suggested several times that her awareness of and respect for her own emotional safety seemed minimal, and that her underreaction to lies and cheating might have a lot to do with the horror and the helplessness of her rape. She looked at me blankly. No, that's not it. We discussed family dynamics, problems with intimacy and self-esteem struggles, as possible contenders for what was leading to this self-sabotage. She'd make some progress, yet just as when she'd shut down her feelings about her rape, when she discovered one more manipulation or one more lie, she'd go numb and do nothing. I wasn't absolutely sure I was right, but it was the one piece of work she steadfastly refused to do, and her behavior in the present stayed the same. Her story, I think, makes it clear that admitting and accepting that something is a trigger for you, whether you're overreactive or underreactive, isn't as easy as it may sound, yet it's really vital to try to understand. Identifying triggers is hard work, and you can use what's called a trauma timeline. You can find the description of a trauma timeline actually in episode 109. But this kind of work may be hard, but it's very worth it. It can help you risk the unfamiliar and not be imprisoned by what is familiar but destructive. It takes a lot of objectivity about yourself, and you may need to ask a trusted friend or a therapist to help you. They may be able to help you recognize when you discount something that others don't, or you get angry about something when there's no obvious reason. You can then write about what could be the possible trigger for that over- or under-reaction. Perhaps in the coming days, you can try to be mindful of your own reactions and see if you think they're over or under. Try to notice whether or not you're getting triggered, and if you are, jot down what's going on in that moment. Then see where it might fit in the past. Use your timeline for ideas. Ask yourself, why did I get so embarrassed? Or what's going on that I didn't even notice she was crying? It takes practice, patience, and self-compassion. Today's email is from someone who's trying to co-parent with an abusive ex-husband. She writes, I've been struggling a lot recently and continue to find comfort and solace in your podcasts. I'm so glad for that. 
I'm recently divorced from an abusive ex-husband and I'm dealing with single parenthood while having to continually face my abuser. Listening to your podcasts helped me come to terms with the fact that he has narcissistic tendencies. The majority of the abuse I endured was verbal, and I was definitely exposed to stonewalling and gaslighting. However, there was also physical and sexual abuse present. Now that he's out of my house, and I know that my son and I are safe, I'm trying to cope with the emotional repercussions of everything I endured. Talk about triggers. On top of making sure my son's well-being is a priority. I would love to hear a podcast on domestic violence, especially dealing with sexual abuse within a marriage. I still find myself questioning if I'm dramatizing my experience since he was my husband, but I've developed significant trust issues because of this. I've been working with a great therapist for a while, but would love your take. And do you have suggestions on how to handle having to face him since we have shared parenting of our son? So here's my response. I'm so sad that this topic is important to you because it happened to you. I doubt seriously if you're dramatizing this, and I'm so glad you have a great relationship with a therapist. Shared parenting with a narcissist is just hard, and especially because he sexually abused you in the marriage. Trying to maintain an empowered stance with him must be extremely difficult. And of course, it's also hard to let your son go with him especially when you feel you can no longer be a buffer and you're going to watch him deal with whatever your ex is dishing out. It may be and often is that a narcissistic parent will become a Disneyland dad or mom for a while. But when the child becomes more of his or her own person, then those problems can multiply. From my perspective, the best you can do is give them lots of permission to talk with you and realize that just like your realization took time, Theirs will as well. When abuse happens in a marriage, it can be very, very confusing. I remember a woman I worked with many years ago now who really was regretting her divorce because she wasn't all that happy with her new life. And she would say to herself, you know, maybe it wasn't all that bad. What I asked her to do was one weekend when she did not have her children that she called together friends or family that she had confided in during her marriage and asked them what they remembered about what she had gone through. She came back the next session with tears in her eyes and about four pages of notes that she had jotted down from her meeting. She said, I'd simply forgotten how miserable I was and how bad the things that he did to me and said to me were. So please, just because time is giving you more perspective, please don't discount the struggle that was innate in your marriage. There was a good reason why you left. I want to thank you for listening to Self Work today. Please feel free to email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. So many of you are doing that and leaving me written reviews on iTunes, which tells me who you are, why you listen, what you like, what you wish there was more of or less of, and that's very helpful information for me. For those of you who've been listening for quite a while, you know that I don't accept advertising on self-work. I want this to simply be 
something for you to be able to listen to without interruption and hopefully experience a little bit about what being in therapy might be like. But I also love your suggestions for improvements or for topics. So email me again at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. You can also go to my website, DrMargaretRutherford.com, and subscribe, and you'll receive this podcast as well as my weekly blog post in just a simple newsletter every week. I do have a book coming out on perfectly hidden depression. It'll be published November the 1st. And if you're interested in pre-ordering that book, you can go to PerfectlyHiddenDepression.com. Also, you can join me at my closed Facebook group, which is now over a thousand members at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. I'd love to have you over there. We talk about all kinds of things, and it's an extremely supportive, warm, welcoming group. And of course, what I appreciate more than anything is you telling your friends about self-work. You're my best advertisement. So thank you if you've already done that. Self-work is growing, and I owe that to you. Thanks again for listening. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.